2: Deep from an underground fortress from an undisclosed location. From Long Island, New York. Miano Gone Wild. Hollies compared us. Still it's crazy, crazy, but crazy in, in a positive way. Miano Gone Wild. compared us. A program like no other.
3: We can tell the truth and it
2: hurts. compared <laughs> Zeal empowered by knowledge. Miano Gone Wild. Miano Gone Wild with your host, Michael Miano, defender of
3: truth. Same thing we do every night. Try to take over the world.
2: Destroying the strongholds of bondage and setting the captives free. From the Power and Preterism Network,
0: here is Michael Miano. Hey, well, Blessings, thank you for taking some time out of your day to tune into this podcast. It has been a while since I've published a podcast regarding our examination of the paradigms and presuppositions of the last days, namely those views that have been put forth by futurists that have come up against the proper teachings of full preterism. I place emphasis on the word proper today because I have a special guest joining us, Steve Hochdahl, and He holds to a view which is referred to as proper preterism, and uh, he's going to tell us a little bit about that, and uh, I'm excited for this podcast. It's been a long time coming. I do appreciate Steve's persistence and consistency in regards to his understanding, all the while completely disagreeing, as you will come to see as we go through today's podcast, I do want to encourage you to listen to the entire podcast, to go through, grab your Bible, grab some notes, uh, grab some paper and pen because you're going to want to take notes and uh, maybe grab a cup of coffee you know, and and just sit down and really go through this. If you have to, break it up into a couple parts. That way you could fully absorb some of the details that are being presented. Um, What I would like to do is just preface today's show with a little bit of thoughts about common prayer. Today is actually the holiday, if you will, of Valentine's Day. So the Book of Common Prayer for Ordinary Radicals actually focuses our attention up on uh, focuses our attention in on Valentine of Rome. So I'm gonna bring us into our time of common prayer and uh, then we'll move into the interview with Steve Hawkdahl, who is the author of Massive Deceptions in Modern Christianity, exposing myths and sacred sacrificing sacred cows on the altar of truth. And we're going to be talking about the Christian Mythbusters series, the last day's edition, as we go through today's show. More specifically, we're going to be talking about the millennium and the binding and the destroying of the Satan that we read about in the New Testament. So let's look at our common prayer here, uh, trusting that we've already begun to set our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I do want to appreciate I had seen a post earlier today by Brother Alvin and he had shared uh, just a little quote and it was that if you're on social media and you have not yet thanked your father or if you're listening to this podcast and you have not yet thanked your father, please stop, take a moment and lift up a in spirit and in truth thanksgiving to the Lord that allowed you to wake up today, that allowed you to wake up to a beautiful day with opportunities set before us to bring healing to the nations. Amen. So, uh... I did want to appreciate that. That also reminds me that this week I uh, put out a Facebook video um, that's going to turn into a YouTube video and it's called Not Amusing. Not So Amusing. And what I do with that uh, video is I talk about some recent criticisms of the full preterist movement of myself, the full preterist understanding and uh, offer some insights that I believe were important to make note of. And... uh, I do encourage you, of course, to go ahead, if you're on Facebook, to find that video. Again, it's called Not So Amusing, and it will soon be loaded up on... Loaded up? It will soon be uploaded to YouTube. So Valentine of Rome, 3rd century church father, 269, a Christian priest in Rome, Valentine was known for assisting Christians persecuted under Claudius II. After being caught marrying Christian couples and helping Christians escape the persecution... Valentine was arrested and imprisoned. Although Emperor Claudius originally liked Valentine, he was condemned to death when he tried to convert the emperor. Valentine was beaten with stones, clubbed, and finally beheaded on February 14, 269. In the year 496, February 14 was named a day of celebration in Valentine's honor. He has since become the patron saint of engaged couples, beekeepers, happy marriages, lovers, Travelers, young people, and greetings. O oh Lord, let my soul rise, soul rise up to meet you as the day rises to meet the sun. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. O oh love that keeps the heavens turning, draw us to you in our yearnings. Psalm chapter 72, verses 16-19 through 19 read, May there be an abundance of grain on the earth, growing thick even on the hilltops. May its fruit flourish like Lebanon and its grain like grass upon the earth. May his name remain forever and be established as long as the sun endures. May all the nations bless themselves in him and call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous deeds. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may all the earth be filled with his glory. Amen, amen. O love that keeps the heavens turning. Draw us into all, draw us to you in all our yearnings. G.K. Chesterton said, Let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair. So, of course, today being Valentine's Day and the need for love in our world being oh so evident, I would say our prayer should be for an increased love, that we would mark out those things that we love and that we would truly. Court them, date them, produce them, reproduce with them. Amen. I'm thinking more of along the lines of books. I love to read. I love books. I'm going to date a book today. I'm going to make sure that I reproduce the love and that I increase in the love that I have for books today. Those of you that are married, I encourage you to do that with your wife. Those of you that are dating, I encourage you to do that with your Uh, That woman or that man that you're courting, uh, those that are engaged, of course, continue to increase in your love as you look forward to that day. Mark out that which you love and date that, love that, reproduce with that today. Amen. Let's pray. Mighty God, we do thank you, Lord. We thank you for for you being love. Scripture reminds us that God is love and that if we are in you, if we abide in you, if we are with you, Lord, that we would be those who love others as we love ourselves. We would be those that would abide in love. Lord, increase our love today. Allow us to mark out the things that we love. Allow us to see love more fully in our day, in our lives, and being reproduced through us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Usually what we do at this point in the common prayer is we go into a recitation of the Our Father. I see no reason why we should not do that this morning. And, uh, Well, amen. So, with no further ado, I'd like to bring us in on discussion with Steve Hawkdahl, again, author of Massive Deceptions, but I'd rather allow him to uh, tell you more. It's been a blessing to get to know him. It's been, again, a blessing to note his consistency and his persistence in regards to the view that he holds to, and I trust that many of you are ready to begin examining the paradigms and presuppositions that will be offered up.
3: I sent you my book, what, almost 10 years ago, 8 years ago?
1: Yeah, oh yeah, about that.
3: Even back then, I uh, had the same proclivities. I noticed that uh, some of these things were coming to be, and I <clears throat> I think I ad, um, amply uh, titled the third section of the book, which a lot of people didn't get. I got some rave reviews off it, actually, um, about regarding part two. It's a three-part book, and um, um People were just telling me that preterism made more sense to them. Now it's not a full preterist perspective, um i.e. every all prophecy fulfilled by seventy, and it's not it is not a partial preterist perspective, uh which demands some type of uh, future second coming and resurrection. So it's neither of those, so for lack of a better word, we called it proper preterism. Um, you know, people can call it what they want. Labels don't really matter to me. But the point of it was to get people intrigued to prove it wrong and also to keep the word preterism in the title because to me and the people that uh, were involved in this, preterism is a key to understanding eschatology. And um, therefore, preterism had to be kept in the title. Someone had said, why don't you call it, you know, since there's some futurist prophecy involved, why don't you call it proper futurism? And, you know, for that very reason, I just said, preterism has to be the centrality of it because preterism is the key to understanding other scriptures. And I think it's um, a great revelation for our day. So uh, what, what exactly is proper preterism? Well, we happen to agree with Folk preterist that the last days ended circa 70 A.D. with the destruction of Jerusalem. So there's no, not really no argument there. The problem is, <clears throat> and I don't know if it's me that's been the, the hindrance or, or people's attitudes or what, why I haven't reached more people with it, because I haven't seen anybody with a good rebuttal. Um... Because um, it's not rocket science, you know. It's to put it uh, to put it uh, bluntly. I'm going to just start with something that a lot of preterists usually bring up when I even mention it, and that's the bookend time statements of the Revelation. Right. Uh, proper preterism does not deny or distort any imminent time statements. That's one of the first. Um, that's one of our first rules. so well, let me ask you first, uh Michael, do you have any pet peeves or annoyances um,
1: um in general you know
3: when it comes when it comes to like uh teaching or talking to people, sure regarding
1: like eschatology one-
3: and things <laughs> like that well yeah, just whatever you know, and then I'll if you want to mind.
1: Okay, sure. Um, one of mine would probably be the phrase partial preterism.
3: And why is that?
1: Because preterism as a theology itself means that we're looking at the eschatological events as past. So when we say partial preterism, it, it just, it's a, in my understanding, it, in my estimation, it just creates confusion in a conversation when we're talking about preterism or futurism, where futurism is saying that these events will be in our yet future. Whether there's some of them or all of them, they will be in the future. And, uh, you know, it just becomes very confusing. I recently watched a video um, by Dr. Kenneth Gentry um, called Hyperpreterism. It's history and heresy. And in that video, he, first he says that preterism is the opposite of futurism. Then he says that every futurist is a preterist. Then he says he's a preterist. Then he says he's a futurist. And I was so confused after I watched that video, and I can only imagine people that would watch that. So that would be my, my reason why that's one of my pet peeves.
3: Well, yeah, I can understand that. And let me bring a little, uh, maybe a little clarification to that. I think what they mean is they are seeing past fulfilled events that they uh, previously did not see when they were full blown futurists is mm-hmm. where I think that uh where that came about but yeah i mean it's it 's confusing it 's inconsistent and it, it so forth okay i don 't like titles in general, and I just soon see see the the name proper and go by the wayside but again, the purpose was to get people to prove us wrong i don 't know about you but um i 've noticed you know, there's a lot of people that say they're truth seekers, but then when you try and show them that they're wrong somewhere in scripture, they're not interested. Therefore, that tells me they're not really a truth seeker, or they're just they're just interested in um, preconceived, um, perceived rather the word perceived truths, which aren't always, which are not always biblical. Well, mm. I I uh, invite biblical correction, and one of the ways that, that I actually came to see this was. Uh, I had to be willing to be wrong or admit I was wrong. And, and that's hard for a lot of people. So <clears throat> I, don't, I myself don't like titles. Well, one of my pet peeves and annoyances is when I try to show people this, they bring me to basic general preterism, i.e., the imminent time statements. Now, okay. and I'm trying to go way, way deeper and beyond that. You know, I know the time statements, the imminent time statements. You know, I, I don't necessarily want them brought up unless I unless I'm forgetting something or I need something, but you know, every time people bring them up I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm not violating that. So with that said, uh let's take a quick look at the um the the uh what full predators have called the bookend time statements of the revelation. And uh it's alleged, according to the full preterist bookend's argument, that there is no prophecy that it's fulfilled after uh, circa 70 AD, and I use that word circa a lot, that you and your uh, people you know are, um, uh, know what that word means. Well, it's a rash conclusion, especially since the revelation reiterates and recapitulates, which means it really wouldn't matter where the time statements were because we know important prophecies were to be fulfilled shortly no matter where the imminent time statements are placed. And the argument goes like this. In the beginning and the end of the Revelation, there are imminent time statements, bookends, as they say, thus they conclude those time statements must mean everything in the Revelation is fulfilled by the time those two statements are fulfilled. And we would say rather than fulfilled, we would propose it is better to say arrived circa 70 A.D. because to come or arrive is not equal to be over, such as uh, fulfilled implies. It means to begin the process. The full preterist paradigm is making it to mean over and completed. Such utter completion and termination is not demanded by the text with uh, regard to all events concerning the ongoing messianic work of Christ during the millennial reign. The alleged bookend time statements being the relevant uh, verses of the verbatim phraseology to show unto his servant things which must shortly come to pass and for the time is at hand repeated again in Revelation 22. Um, and I'm speaking of those in uh, Revelation 3. Uh, behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which you have. No, no man take your crown. Revelation 1:1. Things which must shortly come to pass. Uh, verse 3. Blessed is he that reads that they hear the words of his prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the times at hand. Okay, and at the end of the book, it's uh, Revelation 22. I come quickly, uh, and he says to me things. Uh, says to me, these things are faithful and true, in the Lord. God of the Holy Prophet sent his angels and his servants, the things which must shortly be done, Revelation 22.10. And he said to me, seal not the sayings of this book, prophecy for, of this book, for the time is at hand. <laughs> okay, so um, what I'm saying is, and I think we've had this conversation before, but prophecy can go way well beyond AD 70. How how do you do that without violating those imminent time statements? Well, here's how I think the objection is overruled. This bookend argument has no scriptural support. The time statements were imminent, and yes, the majority of the book of the Revelation is wedged in between those verses. No, it does not mean there cannot be any future prophecy beyond those looming time statements, though. The following that I will uh, show you here refutes the assertion saying Christ does not prophesy anything beyond the fulfillment of those bookend verses and that everything is fulfilled by the destruction of Jerusalem. James Stuart Russell, the author of the Parasea and a big influence on in some modern preterists, also saw the millennial reign as beginning in AD 70, as uh, proper preterists do, and extending into the future. In writing about the difficulty this presented in light of the time statements in Revelation that these things must shortly take place uh, near to when Revelation was written, he said, quote, some interpreters indeed attempt to get over the difficulty by supposing that the thousand years being a symbolic number may represent a period of very short duration and so bring the whole within the prescribed apocalyptic limits. But this method of interpretation appears to us so violent and unnatural that we cannot hesitate to reject it. And this is the key part. The act of binding and shutting up the dragon, old serpent, slander, or adversary does indeed come within the shortly of the apocalyptic statement for it is coincident or nearly so with the judgment of the harlot and the the beast. But the term of the dragon's imprisonment is distinctly stated to be for a thousand years and thus must necessarily pass entirely beyond the field of vision, so strictly and constantly limited by the book itself. And that's, uh, unquote, and that's from the Parasea, page 514. Russell was saying that those who were trying to fit the millennium in between 30 and AD 70 were wrong, as did professor of hermeneutics and preterist Milton Terry. Neither of them would consider themselves a the full preterist. Unfortunately, many full preterists are currently advocating the erroneous notion that the millennium was the period between 80, 30, and 70. Russell correctly saw the millennium as beginning in AD 70 with the fall of Jerusalem and the harlot at the day of the Lord. <clears throat> I am in agreement with him on this. If full preterism is defined as a position that all prophecy has been fulfilled by or around AD 70, including the millennium, then even J.S. Russell, as well as another preterist and professor of hermeneutics, Milton Terry, were not full preterists. Terry asserts, quote, actually, Revelation 19, 11 through 21 covers the entire field of biblical eschatology. The whole is rapidly sketched for details would have transcended the purpose of the prophecy of the book, not to be sealed, 22 verse 10, which was to make known things which must shortly come to pass, 1 one through 3. But like the last section of our Christ Discourse, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, which introduces things running far beyond the time limits of that prophecy, but which were to commence, quote, when the Son of Man should come in his glory and begin his thousand-year reign, and was what the anticipation of his people were anyway, so this, so this sevenfold vision begins with the parasy of Revelation 1911 and sketches a brief outline of the mighty triumphs and the age-stirring issues of the Messiah's reign. So, what are the supposed book and time statements really saying? The quote, I come quickly is an admonishment to endure as overcomers to ensure their participation in the soon-coming thousand-year reign, which was part of their deliverance and reward if we endure... If we endure we shall shall meaning future tense from the writer from when the writer was speaking, also reign, and I would insert there a thousand years with him, Second Timothy two, twelve through A, with his saints, Revelation twenty four affirms this, the promised reign later described as a thousand years. It is what they were anticipating when they asked the Lord, Will you at this time restore the, again the kingdom to Israel? Acts one six. If old preterists insist on some type of pre seventy reign we don't necessarily have a problem with that, but we have shown that reign cannot be the thousand years of revelation twenty four or the binding of Satan, which is specifically uh signified uh, the actual thousand years is specifically signified by the binding release of adversary. a thousand years is a figurative expression denot- expression denoting a long period which is a prophecy that began not ended circa seventy a d <clears throat> that the righteous were eager for all throughout the period from the Pentecost to seventy the millennium's arrival in Christ parousia meant the kingdom was restored to Israel, as they were asking in Acts six. The I come quickly was also a warning to the Christians who had fallen prey to the Babylonian doctrine of the Judaizers about the soon-coming judgment of the whore, come out of her, my people, uh, be ready, etc., and the day of the Lord. None of this means or demands that all prophecies had to be fulfilled at Christ parousia merely because those time statements are allegedly bookends at the beginning and end of the book. There is nothing in the text of Revelation which demands that every detail the millennial reign be completed by the first century A.D. Such a demand is purely an eisegetical imposition upon the text in order to support the full preterist model and mantra of all things fulfilled by 70. I'm just about done here. If you read the rest of uh, Psalms 110, particularly verses 2, 3, 5, and 6, you, you can see the reference of when the process begins in AD 70, right out through it begins waging war with all the other nations, not just Jerusalem, uh, which started the second half of the war. Thus, all fulfilled, begun, not over, and we are now living in the in the day of wrath and the day of the Lord, where this process continues until all nations and death itself are destroyed. Note verse two: the rod, right arm, is sent out of Zion to go wage war with on the enemies, defeating the bulk of his enemies is done outside the city. Christ. The right arm rod of his strength first returns to Jerusalem, Zion, to destroy those enemies which had violently taken the kingdom by force during his visitation. Um, Matthew 11:12. The destruction of his enemies begins, not ends, with Jerusalem and has been moving out to all other nations since the Parasea. That is why uh, kings are almost extinct. Chaos reigns more and more through the world as you move down through history. Well, it is true that there are those who wish and are trying to take us to a one world unified government, their efforts are in fact bringing us to global collapse. Um, in summary, there is nothing within the text of Revelation which demands that every single detail be complete by Christ's second coming at 70. Quite the contrary, it is evident by John's vision that Christ's work as Messiah was only beginning at his at his parousia. Full preterist, while correctly understanding the proper timing of the arrival of Christ's parousia, Fail to comprehend the ongoing nature and work of Christ to, to bring about the full restoration of righteousness upon the earth that the Father desires. The all things fulfilled in eighty seventy model wrongly posits Christ's millennial reign is coming to a close at the very time it began. This is an utterly untenable and preposterous position which we pray many will reconsider in light of the arguments and proofs we are putting forth. The kingdom has indeed been established as is evidenced by Christ's defeat and overthrow of the first century Judean cults. But we cannot, in all honesty, maintain a full preterist position so that, that so egregiously truncates the messianic work of Christ and which ignores the very
0: clear beginning of the millennium in eighty seventy. 70 Now you might be wondering at this point, are we going to continue this interview? Because obviously we're in stark disagreement. Um, what I would like to do is allow Steve to continue... As he began to ask me some questions, we began to have a bit of a dialogue when we had talked. However, what I wanted to bring up was the bookends discussion. Remember, he had called this the bookends argument regarding the book of Revelation. Now, I just want to read you both those bookends. Here in the beginning of Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 1, we read, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angels, To his servant John, who bore record of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that reads and he that hears the words of this prophecy and keeps those things which are written herein, for the time is at hand. So, and actually, we're going to continue. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and was, which and who is to come, from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, to him that loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood, and has made us kings and priests unto God the Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. Behold, he comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also who pierce him with all kindred of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Some translations say all tribes of the earth. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation, in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the First and the Last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So that's the first bookend to the book of Revelation. That gives us much context in regards to who the, who's writing this letter, what goal of the letter is, who it's going to, When it's being written, John was in the tribulation in the first century, right? Then you get to chapter 22. And we're going to end with verse 8. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of an angel, which showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do this not, for I am a fellow servant, and of your brethren, the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still, and he that is filthy, let him be filthy still, and he that is righteous, let him be righteous, and he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according to the work I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, and the end, the first, and the last. Blessed are they who do the commandments, they that have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. For without our dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters, whosoever loveth and maketh a lie, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to these things in churches. I am the root of the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say come, and let him that hears come, and let him that thirsts come, and whosoever will let him come take of the water of life freely. For I testify to every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book, that if any man shall add to these things, God shall add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of this prophecy, God shall take away his part of the book of life, and out of the holy city, from the things which are written in this book. For he which testifies to these things, surely I shall come quickly, even so. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So what we have there is John concluding the letter, saying quite a few poignant things, such as, do not seal the prophecy of this book because the time is short. You see, this is in contrast to what Daniel said in his prophecy. If you go to Daniel chapter 12, Daniel was told to seal up the prophecy because the time was not yet. The time was far off, and that time was 500 years. So a time soon for the revelation and the, of the clarity, the fulfillment of these things, written in the book of Revelation, would be soon, which the Preterist position posits was in the first century. And as you'll see as we go through and we continue the rest of the podcast here with Steve, you'll see that we make note of some very important points that separate full Preterism from what Steve Hawkdahl is referring to as proper Preterism. Um, now, I wanted to ask you
3: because you had um, corresponded with Adam Marshock who I was fortunate to spend some time with and uh, be a, a big influence on his understanding of this thousand years and binding of Satan.
1: Where I had come to kind of be challenged by what Adam was bringing forth was um, was the fact that what he had said about the thrones being set up, right? He said that Right. The thrones could not have been being set up during the time of the reign of Christ, but rather um, if we're not taking the recapitulating view, because that's what Adam does is he gets dismisses the, the recapitulating perspective that Revelation 20 is a, you know, a synopsis, a, re, a recapitulating picture of uh, what's happening through the whole book of Revelation. Um, so, that challenged me a little bit, right, in the setting up of the thrones, and that there couldn't that if I was to reconsider my understanding of the recapitulation um that he could be right mm-hmm. and uh, so I began to study it. I began to look at his chart that he had given, and where i again i just for me, as I keep reading through Revelation chapter twenty, I look at Matthew chapter twelve, I, I look at these texts about the binding. Um, And I do see in Ephesians where the the setting up of the saints in heavenly thrones, um, you know, I just wasn't seeing it this, and again, I I believe that Adam is dismissing that factor, that recapitulating factor that seems to be very clear all throughout the book of Revelation.
3: Okay, well, it's fortunate that you're talking to me then, because maybe you can listen to this again, or maybe correspond with uh, someone else who has a different take on it uh, after hearing what I have to say, because... If we look at it as a recapitulation uh, in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight, and uh they ask Jesus a question, and he says, Verily I say to you that you who did follow me in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits upon a throne of his glory, sh- you shall also sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's future tense. Would you say not?
1: You shall also sit on the throne. Tw-
3: yes, it would be future tense, right. Yeah. What I'm showing you here is, they were still waiting for to be seated on thrones with Christ, even during His earthly ministry. And as you know, in the Revelation uh, twenty, verse four, after the defeat of the beast power, you know, which is in Revelation nineteen, um, and, and we have the martyred saints, i.e., uh, whatever it says, beheaded in some versions, whatever, they were martyred. They they uh, defeated the beast. They overcame the beast and. Uh, they sat on thrones and reigned with Christ a thousand years. My point was, when I asked you about Adam, was I didn't think you were really on the same page with him unless you weren't talking about it, but I never had a chance to talk to you. And my point is, Adam's primary point, and what I had driven home with him, I think was that that's when the Satan is bound. Because right before that verse, in verse 4, you know, the beheaded saints, uh lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years, we have Satan being bound a thousand years. Um, you know, Revelation 20, verse 3, flows right into Revelation 20, verse 4. So that's why so many futurists see, see the, um, the thousand-year reign of Christ as some utopian time on earth, which I did not agree with. But that's why they see it, because the binding is during the time that they are seated on thrones and reigning. So the binding of Satan is the same time that the saints are on thrones with Christ, uh, reigning with Him a thousand, uh, a figurative thousand years. I'll say I, I just told you in my first, um, when I was talking about the Revelation bookend statements, um, that I think it denotes a long period, a thousand years, right. and that's um, a better use of the word thousand. I, Strong says it's a plural of uncertain affinity. Well. Um, I take it as figurative. You know, in, in the Revelation we have 144,000, 12,000 from this tribe, that tribe, that tribe. So, I mean, are we to say that if there's 12,001 in one of those tribes that uh scripture is not wholly inspired? No, it's being used figuratively for a big number and complete. And I think that's the same way Revelation 20 is being used, using a thousand as a big figure and complete. But it's signified by the binding and release of this adversary, and that's why I think that Matthew twelve twenty nine that I've been hearing for years and never get a good rebuttal, and this is very important because it it brings us into the world we're in today. Um, it's not just a matter of a little esch- eschatological uh, um, discrepancy. It, it actually brings us into the world we're living in today. Um, that this. There was no fictitious binding in Matthew 12 where he's talking about the strong. Well, actually, it's not even strong man. I think it's strong one in the literal versions. And Jesus is casting out demons in the verse before, and he says you can't, uh, you have to first bind the strong, or strong one. RV just has strong. That is not Satan. Jesus is just simply making a statement that, you know, in order to, to rob a house, you have to first bind the strong and and um, you know the fact that there's demons um, cast out in the verse before, and I would I would advise someone to look into the devil, demon, Satan topic, because there's still a lot of people that are giving power to this mythological being that supposedly you know this uh, angelic being that being that fell from heaven because they don't. Consider all the different uses of the word heaven in Scripture. That uh, took one third of God's army, and this, you know, it, it's just it's just Christian myth or Jewish fable you know, that makes void the Word of God. So there was no mythical demons being cast out in the verse before Jesus is simply casting out. Um, see, what I've learned in my study—I don't know about you, but in my study, I've learned that the um, the demons being cast out, you know, into the swine and all this other stuff, these evil forces. If these people were, yes, possessed with evil spirits, but they got, Jesus came to remove the curse. So Jesus is casting out the curse that the Father put upon these, you know, many of them that lost their identity from the uh, 8th century B.C., these Israelites that uh, had become Gentiles. Hosea eight, 8 says, uh, you know, that they were swallowed up by the Gentiles, and God did that for a very good purpose, I think, that I use to fight the uh, pernicious I.O. that I thank you that I notice you fight too and Don Preston fights uh, uh, pernicious Israel-only clans Mm -hmm. that has no no, uh, biblical grounds. Um, But anyway, uh, Jesus was removing the curse. And, and, you know, these Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of the day were using their tradition saying, you know, he has a demon, this guy's demon-possessed. You know, but these people were psychotic from this Curse that they had had, God had actually put upon them. He said He put upon them madness. So, so that's what we're talking about with the this fictitious binding that Preterists have have run with in Matthew twelve is not the binding of Satan. The binding of adversary is the one and only Christian adversary of the time that was uh, killing killing the prophets and Jesus. And if you read. Romans 16, verse 20, which I actually used to say, you know, uh, full preterist used it to say that this is the end of Satan. You know, he's crushed and, and uh, and you know, Satan is gone forever. But that's not true because that's when actually Satan was bound. In Romans 16, 20, it says, uh, where is this here? Okay, and the God of peace shall bruise the actual um literal translation is bruise, not crush, but it was a crushing defeat. But and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Well who's he talking to? When he says your feet? Church at Rome. He's talking to the Romans. So right. well, the church at Rome. Yeah. So so, you know, um preterists are, are really uh, Uh, Good on audience relevance. So what I think he's saying is the greatest adversaries of the first century Christians are are thoroughly stomped by the Roman armies. He's saying, under your feet, Romans, as it distinctly says, and the God of peace shall bruise adversary under your feet shortly, your feet. Well, if he's talking to the Romans, did that happen in A.D. 30? No, it happened in A.D. 70. So we don't have a
1: fictitious 40-year binding in 80, well, I 80, uh, right there, I would already mark out a disagreement. I'm not saying that the book of Romans was written to the Romans. It was written to the church at Rome. I'm so right, he's talking to them. He's not talking to the Roman armies. He's talking to the church at Rome that was being okay. persecuted by the Roman armies.
3: Okay. But even so, I mean, if we, if we, take, that, uh, if we take the Matthew 12 strong, strong one, strong man, strong nothing there, uh, to, to bind a strong man's house, we, we have a real problem because if that's the beginning of the thousand years, when, when Satan is, is bound, why is he bound? So he deceives not the nations until the thousand years are over. Well, in Ephesians two, 2 we have, In times past you walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. First Timothy four one, but the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, this is the last days that ended with the, the destruction of Jerusalem, some will depart from the faith, cleaving to deceiving spirits and teachings of demons. Second Thessalonians two ten, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth, that they may be saved. And I mean I can go on and, and, and give you other verses that um first Peter five eight. Um, Be sober and watchful, your adversary the devil, like a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. So, you know, I'm just asking preterists to reconsider and abandon this uh, fictitious binding of adversary, you know, that was supposedly during the ministry of Christ, you know, Christ's earthly ministry, because it doesn't add up. The only the only thing that adds up as the adversary that was bound and um that was um uh, defeated, bruised, crushed, bound, was in A D Because it says in uh in uh, Revelation eighteen verse twenty three, last part, um it's talking about Judah that you know, and I always um distinguish Judah from the house of Israel, you know. that there was apostate Jews in, in the land at that time, and they had, uh, they had the kingdom. Jesus said, the kingdom should be taken from you, Judah. You know, not from Israel. You know, Israel would receive the kingdom, but where was Israel? They were out, you know, in the Assyrian diaspora, scattered to the nations. So these people were being called back in righteousness in Christ, i.e., the third branch of the olive tree, the green branch that the uh, pernicious Israel-only groups ignore. So that's how they were being called back. They, they weren't going to be called back as you know the old covenant house of Israel and the old covenant house of Judah. They were being called back in Christ, and and the Jews, the 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 righteous ones would you know would cling to Christ in His way. So they were uh, the believing remnant, but there was the apostate Jews uh, that were the the adversary of Christianity that would uh, soon be crushed or bruised under the Romans' feet that were, um, you know, deceiving, killing the uh, apostles and Christ. And um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought now. But anyway, you know, that's the adversary that was bound, and it wasn't until AD 70. When you see that, you have to ask yourself, because they were the ones deceiving the nations. Oh, it's it's chapter 18 it's talk verse 23 it's talking about this apostate judah this this system this uh, babylonian um this apostate Bob babylonian system harlot that was deceiving the nations up to that point even when he says it you know de- deceiving the nations it's in the verse that would soon be uh, bound in, in revelation 20 verse 3 so you know when full predators are telling you in Romans 16:20 that that's the crushing of Satan the end of Satan that's the end of the 1000 the year binding of Satan that's that's a bunch of baloney because that that crushing or better rendering bruising which correlates with uh, Genesis 3:15 where you know that um the prophecy that uh was given that would uh what is it Eve would would bruise the serpent's head you know it's fulfilling that and that is not, you know, Romans 16:20. This bruising of of uh, uh, of Satan adversary is not the same as Satan being thrown in the lake of fire, i.e., destroyed in Revelation 20 verse 10 at the end of the thousand years. It's not the same. So, you know, it's another issue, another problem they have with this, you know, fictitious 40-year binding of Satan. So the important thing to me is when you realize that the binding of Satan occurred in AD 70, you have to ask yourself, when was it released? Because it says after the thousand years that this adversary would be released again and go out and deceive the nations and make war in the far corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. And um, to me, that's when it gets real interesting and you see the world that we live in today. But as of now, you know, if no one's willing to be wrong and if people don't, you know, don't want to be, you know, don't want to be corrected or uh, if they don't have a good rebuttal, they walk away and you don't talk to them anymore, how do you make any grounds with this? But it says the Bereans, when they when they felt they were wrong, you know, they said, we'll see you again on this matter. You know, they didn't, they didn't abandon them saying, oh, I don't want to talk to this guy no more. They said, we'll see you again on this matter. And they talked again and again, and that's what the people that helped me to see some of these things. Um, you know, I had to swallow. Yeah, maybe I swallowed a little pride. I, uh, but you know, I was mostly, mostly kind of shocked. And then I, I actually started bugging, bugging the heck out of them, and we came, we became friends. But, um, I just wanted to say one other thing about this adversary and this binding that I think is. Uh, very pertinent and important to maybe hit home with some people on what I'm trying to say about this binding because it's it's really intricate and in what's, <clears throat> you know, yeah, the throne verses are, are, are good, but there is uh, no dispute in my mind that the binding, the thousand-year binding of uh, adversary is the same time period. The dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, which is bound a thousand years by the angel messenger of war of the bottomless pit, which uh, we've actually found to be Judea because of uh, the language that John uses. And um, he has a a sea beast coming out of the ocean, Rome, and then he has a a land beast coming out of Judea. Well, this this, uh, messenger of war, I mean this angel messenger of war of the bottomless pit is the totally delusional apostate Zionist Judaism, which is bound, killed, captured, and scattered at the end of the product of the war During Judea, this bitter adversary, Satan, was shut up and sealed so that he, Satan, the adversary, would deceive as national Judaism the nations no more until the thousand years are fulfilled. The thousand years being a symbolic identification for an indefinite period of time, we think, um, I won't get into that, that would eventually be fulfilled in the future from 70 A.D. Sometime after that, he, this adversary, Satan, must be loosed a little season, Greek chronos as compared to the indefinite time span of a 1,000 years. And when the 1,000 years, long time, as compared to the short time, are expired, Satan shall be loose, released out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations again. All this is verified by the fact that in Revelation 18.23, the, the harlot Jerusalem is identified as the one that by your sorceries were all nations deceived and then in Revelation twelve ten c the, the accuser, National Judaism and the New Testament, Jews are identified as accusers more than 30 times of our brothers, Christians, is cast down. And then you note in uh, Revelation 20, verse 3, Satan, the adversary, synagogue of Satan, Revelation 12, 2, 9 and 3, 9, there's only one group of people that go to a synagogue, is bound specifically that he should deceive the nations no more. And then in verse 8, he, the Zionist Jew, the great harlot, the deceiver of the nations, is released to go out and deceive the nations again. As binding aspect of, of this uh, did not take place until seventy, it is totally impossible that the thousand years could be referring to the forty year period which began in circa thirty AD and ended in seventy AD as some insist. This correlates very well with Romans sixteen twenty, where Paul writes to the Christians at Rome that God that Yahweh of peace shall bruise Satan under their feet shortly. What other Satan adversary was bruised and bound shortly after Paul wrote those words. So presumably the 1,000 years ended, we think, in 1948 or soon after when Zionistic Judaism was again established, released in the land of Judea. Current world events certainly confirm that the nations are deceived by something as it certainly appears that they are being gathered together for battle against Christianity, the beloved city in general, and the Christian West, the camp of the saints in particular. It is extremely interesting that the scenario which John describes in Revelation 20 seven through nine, appears to be taking place in the very world in which we are currently living, and Jerusalem, for whatever reason, is right in the middle. It appears that we may be in for some very interesting times as these events continue to play out. It is certainly true that Zionistic Judaism and dispensational futurist eschatology have worked hand-in-glove to deceive the nations during the past hundred years with their false claims that are amazingly similar, given the ostensible diversities of their origin and identities." Well, if we're correct, um, and we, you know, would, would debate anyone on this, that this adversary has all the attributes of the one that was released into the land, claiming to be the chosen, deceiving millions, uh, causing wars, uh, is, is the first century adversary that I sometimes uh, refer to as the reemerged harlot. Then we would have to see Gog and Magog on the world scene. Which I think we do. Um, I've never, ever, not even from uh, Kurt Simmons, heard a good description of Gog and Magog. I, I've heard Preterists for years try to conflate, conflate the Gog and Magog war with uh, the Roman Jewish war, which have different um, different at- players. One are end time players. One's after a thousand years, not not the uh, last days. Uh, one has a different outcome than the other. So I mean, you know, there's a lot to uh, there's a lot more to be said about this, but I you know I hope this gives you some food for thought. You know, I I hope you don't um, just try to dismiss it. I I don't know. I mean, I know with me, I I tried to prove it wrong for a while and I couldn't. So
1: the first thing is, is clearly this isn't a debate. I'll say that because there were a lot of things that you had said when you were talking that you said rather flippantly that I would have held you to had this be, you know, was this a debate? Um, Obviously we could go on, we could talk about um, why the full preterist has come to understand 40, um, the 40 years as the time of completeness of the fulfillment Mm -hmm. of the binding reigning, you know, that would be something that we could spend quite a bit of time talking about. It's not something that was just fictitiously made up. You know, rabbis had held to um, a time of transition of roughly about 40 years um, during the time of the transition from the age to come, um, from the present evil age to the age to come. So uh, a lot of these things, you know, they're bolstered by other areas of study. Um, you know, again, the book ends to Revelation. I, I do understand what you're saying. Um, however, you said that it was eisegetical to, uh, to say that that's the fulfillment of the kingdom, and obviously I would disagree. I, you know, that could be a rather developed study which I believe, you know, men like Dr. Well, Preston have.
3: Well, the problem is, if, if that's the, um, what did you say of the kingdom?
1: Well, about the book.
3: Yeah, I got that. If that's a fulfillment of the kingdom, then that's another thing that um, um, I think full preterism leads to is, is, um, you know, I hate to say it, but it lead, it, it is leading some to, the understanding of Israel only—that everything's wrapped up then, because well, how, how are how are saints raised? If they're only raised in the last day, the understanding of full preterists last day, you know that's over with, and right. you know these things. So I mean, so it's not just that. And I don't I don't say I don't say flippantly that the full preterists. Don't get me wrong, full preterists have some scholarship in that but I think it's cleverly devised fables, you know, because I don't agree with it, but...
0: Okay, well, I trust that many of you at this point are taking some notes. So now we see that Steve has marked out that the 40-year millennium understanding, the transmillennial view that was the transition between the present evil age and the age to come, uh, that that understanding is cleverly devised fables. Um, I do believe I've, I've fostered up plenty of information for us to think out and... Uh, my goal is not to make this an overextend podcast, so I want to just mark out one time of listening to Steve all the way through, allowing him to posit some of his challenges, and then, of course, we're going to go ahead and examine that chapter that he had mentioned in his book, Massive Deceptions in Modern Christianity, on the next podcast, and uh, we're going to continue to just mark out the problems with this paradigm presupposition being posited as proper preterism. However, I want to listen to this next part. And what now begins is a discussion about the fruit of proper preterism. What what essentially is Steve saying? What should we be seeing that the full preterist paradigm is not seeing? Listen to this.
3: We're not supposed to have newspaper exegesis, but that's why exactly I told a friend of mine, actually, who actually, uh, another preterist just recently adopted prop, what we call proper preterism. And, and he said, well, you did it the opposite. You first seen it through Scripture, and now it's happening. Well, actually, if it's interesting because if we are correct that this first century adversary is back again, i.e., after the thousand years, we're going to see a lot of things that happened in the first century. We're going to see... Uh, you know, we're going to see deception widespread. We're going to see uh, the culture wars, you know, the attack on Christianity and the beloved city that, that surrounds the camp of the saint, you know, uh, this uh, adversary and this Gog and Magog, i.e. pagan nations and this type of thing surrounding the camp of the saints. So we're going to see a lot of first century um, um, characteristics. And now, just to talk about, you know, has Christ subdued all his enemies? And I would encourage people to read... Uh, the dogs are outside the city. Another um, uh, end time, I mean, um, uh, uh, bookend verse, I guess you could call it the end of Revelation, that I think has been totally distorted because uh, the vision ends in verse 6. And um, John is actually talking about the present when he says that. Um, well, anyway, so uh, the UN right now is telling people this, that that they... Uh, that they cannot criticize the invasions. Right now, Europe is fully invaded uh, by these pagan hordes. I mean, their cultures are ruined. Sweden, one of the most peaceful Christian countries, is now the number one rape uh, country in the the world. Um, You know, some of these things are just happening, and we can't say that all Christ's enemies are subdued, because if if the dogs, uh, you know, if Christ subdues all his enemies... Uh, you know, even as the parable show, like in Luke 19, subdues and subjugates his enemies, the dogs can't forever be an ever-continuing presence in uh, God's plan. So that's a good thing, if I'm right. But, um, yeah, you will see some of these first-century attributes. And it's not newspaper exegesis. It's because adversaries been released for a little while. So, you know, it, it throws all that on its head, uh, you know, all that argument on its head, because
1: that's what you would expect if this is correct, if it's correct. Any eschatological detail that you're going to bring up, you have to show me it in the Law and the Prophets, and you have to show me why it would extend beyond the fulfillment that was clearly happening in the first century. That's, well, you know, Jesus and Matthew 5.
3: For yeah, one sorry, thing. Go ahead. For one thing, what does Jesus say? These are the days in vengeance, of vengeance when all things written shall be fulfilled. You know, remember in the beginning we talked about our pet peeves and annoyances? And, right. pre- and uh, preterists always bring me back to basic preterism. General, you know, there you go. All things are fulfilled. Well, no. Number one, it's, uh, the New Testament hadn't even been written yet, much less the Revelation, So Jesus isn't talking about, you know, it would be foolish to say Jesus is talking about all things written that weren't even written yet. Number two, the the context is clearly the days of vengeance, which kind of answers the question you just had. Much of the Old Testament is talking about the destruction that was coming upon the harlot and the day of the Lord coming with Jesus. You know, and Jesus setting up his kingdom. You know, it doesn't... doesn't, uh, very little goes into far future. Like, I'll give you an example. Like, Ezekiel 38 and 39 goes into the far future because Ezekiel's, most Protestants don't even consider this, but most Ezekiel's talking to a redeemed Israel or the church. You know, it's not some old covenant Israel that's here and gone, you know. Uh, so some of these prophecies, even in the Old Testament, project far into the future, way past 70. You know, Jesus is talking to a redeemed Israel, Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine is talking about after many days or after a thousand years. It's just another way of saying it. You know, you'll be visited, and you know he's projecting these things. And <clears throat> you know, let me let me end with just um, reiterating that we do not disagree in the last days um, that the last days ended with the destruction of Jerusalem, but I say it was the last days of the Mosaic marriage covenant age. It wasn't, you know, the last days of everything or it doesn't say the last days of prophecy or, you know what I mean?
1: Where does it say the last days of everything or the last days of prophecy? It does not. That's I, That was my point. Right. You know, so I, th- I guess, I, yeah, I have a lot of questions because for me, Gog and Magog, for example, isn't that a last days thing? Isn't that no. something that's going to happen at no. the time of the end?
3: No, thank you for bringing that up no it 's the last days of the latter years some some uh versions say the future years In the future years it 's after Ezekiel says after many days or after the thousand years he 's um referring to because it leads right up it goes into the first resurrection the the um the dry bones prophecy and everything and and then it leads you know that these people these people are dwelling confidently in a land you know these Christian people are dwelling confidently in a land, and this and this, these hordes come upon them. This Gog and Magog. So Ezekiel, you know, reiterates also, and there's also um, symbolic language, like there is in the Revelation. Just like you know, Gary Demartay saying that ancient <clears throat> ancient weaponry, weaponry demands an ancient uh, battle. Oh, that's BS. I mean, uh, uh, Ezekiel, like the Revelation, is um, symbolic, and it's. Uh, it's symbolic for war you know i mean ezekiel parallels the revelation you know god is just telling ezekiel you know hey you know there's going to be war during this time and these invading forces so you know those those ancient weapons are symbolic for war
1: because okay so can i ask you to play that out a little further so you said that these these uh forces are going to come against this these, this nation then what how does this camp camp the chapel of saints right well,
3: okay well we, we well, we have the parallel that I think we're in, because because <clears throat> I, well, I already told you that um, I think 1940, or circa, I always say circa in case I'm off, 1948 was the release of adversary into the land again to, uh, to lay claim to the land, and what's really interesting is the nations recognize it. You know, that's never before. That's not in Adam Marschalk's theory. His is you know I use that word fictitious not in a mean way or condescending way, but you know it's just how it comes out because I, I I'm I'm really sick of dealing with 40 year millenniums and 65 year.
1: Yeah. So to bring us back to the point of uh, what you had said about all things written. Now I understand that's you know basic preterism, um, as you put it. The, the problem would be though is that the paradigm that we're operating under, as I operate under is that what's being spoken about in the New Testament is nothing other than the fulfillment of what was being written about in the Law and the Prophets. So, yes, fulfillment of all things written, meaning that what's being talked about in the New Testament is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament things that were written. So, again, for me, and then Jesus in Matthew 5 says that the old heaven and earth will not pass away until every jot and tittle of the Law, meaning the Law and the Prophets, would be fulfilled. Uh So that's why the preterists are not willing to, to be honest with you, that's why they're not willing to entertain what you're saying here. Because it goes completely outside. But if they're proven
3: wrong on something, I I understand that. Um, But if they're proven wrong on something, they they shouldn't cling to it. I mean, just because of those. But the thing is, I can can, uh, tell you right now, the first one you brought up is easily uh, rectified with what I'm telling you by saying that the all things written, the context is the the days of vengeance, which was uh, the days of vengeance in the Old Testament are those days leading up to and including the the destruction of the harlot Jerusalem. It's not all things written, period. It's all things in that context. All things written in that context.
1: So how about Matthew 5? Where it's not one jot or tittle will pass from the law until all things are fulfilled.
3: Well, that's true. All things, um, and th- this one's always been a little more difficult for me. But the the way I see it is, and I have I have some writings on it. But the way I see it is that um, heaven and earth passed passed away um, in the first century. But oh boy, yeah, that, that that's. Uh, a little more complicated. But the kingdom, the way I see it is uh, the kingdom does not come down, Revelation 21, until later, when, when God is with mankind. Um, you know, I, I understand that the revelation recapitulates, but I see Revelation 19, 20, and the beginning of 21 up to verse 6 um, as chronological. And it says that uh, whatever it is, the city, whatever the kingdom comes down, Mm-hmm. And uh God is God is with mankind and, and uh but heaven and earth oh let me think here. Heaven and earth cast itself, so, you know, if we look at covenantal uh covenantal issues, the destruction of the, the temple and everything, you know, that was a form of heaven and earth. And we know that in second Corinth second Colossians, uh what is it, four, where the um, um the um not the law but the um, ordinances have passed, certain ordinances have passed away, but I mean, then, then there's, I mean, that's complicated, and then there's the moral law that always stays, so I don't see how predators can use that as an argument to refute what I'm saying, because, yeah, yeah, some of those things passed, uh, some heaven and earth uh, may have passed, um, I don't see the city as coming down and dwelling with mankind yet, I because uh, the destruction of, if I'm correct, that uh release of adversary was uh, circa 1948. We have to see the destruction of that entity
1: soon. It says that... Well, the preterist rel- would say that, again, the preterist would say you're wrong. We wouldn't, we wouldn't even allow you to go, you know, I'm listening to you and I'm, I'm even taking notes. But again, the bigger problem would be that the preterist paradigm is that the fulfillment of the last days, as you mentioned, you do believe in the fulfillment of the last days. But then you alluded to a yet again, another last days that I don't see a reason for. And well, again' because, so we're just well, going because
3: in ezekiel thirty eight it's clearly the latter years. it's not the last days. look it up uh, what is it ezekiel thirty eight verse eight and it correlates it uh corresponds with revelation twenty they they're parallels, much of the uh, revelation parallels with ezekiel. they're both symbolic books they're both talking about uh, different time different time periods um, and um uh the it is the latter years the last days of the latter years, to be more precise. You know, as preterists, don't we always have to ask uh, the last days of what? You know, the last days of Genghis Khan, the last days of the old Jewish covenant. The la- you know, we can't just say the last days. We have to specify.
1: Do we not? Well, I think that for the most part, you know, in our conversation, I think for clarity's sake, when we're talking about the last days, we're talking about the eschatological last days that are being spoken about in the New Testament.
3: Yeah, but you can't just sum it up like that. You know, the scripture isn't that, you know, that's been part of the problem. You have to well, no, I, I would individual. say that
1: the paradigms and presuppositions being added to confuse us are part of the problem. You see, that's where we're having this this divide here would be that well, the way I, might, I'm looking yeah, at this that, go, go ahead, ahead please. I not
3: mean to interrupt. No, no,
1: I mean to Go ahead, please. No, what,
3: what, I, what I want to say is, hey, you know, I appreciate conversation. I'm just trying to do what I think... Uh, God wants me to do it. If if I'm correct on this, which which I am, you know, I'm you know, if someone. If someone, I am until someone shoots it down. Put it that way. You know, there's sure. a lot of false. There's a lot of false humility going around, especially on Facebook. You know, people in my humble opinion and this and that. But to me, humility. You know, I think Trump's a humble guy, and most people would laugh at that because he's crude and he's uh, to the point. But to me, being wrong is. Uh, I mean, to me, being humble is uh, changing when when. Uh, you're proven wrong. Sure, amen. and I think I'll I think I'll do that.
0: Well, it's evident that Steve reads the paper, amen. And uh, I'm very cautious about that due to the fact that I had come from an understanding of Bible prophecy and eschatology that was very much based upon contemporary events and what we had read in you know, in going on in the political environment. So I'm pretty cautious about that. I do believe that it's important to have political convictions to uh, get an understanding of what is going on in our contemporary environment and uh to play an active role actually in that however again I'm cautious about allowing my understanding to be flavored by that which i believe uh steve Hawkdall is guilty of what i would like to do is end by focusing our attention in on that first parable of jesus if you will um i don't find it to be coincidence that while i was pairing this podcast i began to read through the second time uh t.j smith's book well actually more than the second time, but uh T.J. Smith's book, Kingdom Come, where he goes through the parables of Jesus. And sure enough, the strong man is one of the first parables that's marked out by T.J. Smith that actually comes about in Mark chapter 3, if you're using the gospel of Mark as your your tool to understand the parables. He does say some interesting things in the book, and I just wanted to bring them up for consideration and discussion, and of course, as they apply to some of the things that were brought forth on today's podcast. One, one of the things that he makes note of is... Um, and he's citing something, I believe it's a uh, Bible commentary by Bernard Ram, and, uh, yeah, Protestant Biblical Interpretation by Bernard Ram, and it says this, in number seven of Good Bible Interpretation, a clear understanding of the time period that the parables are intended for, for is necessary for their full interpretation. Therefore, the parables will yield the best meaning if they are looked upon as descriptions of the times between the Advents. Again, that being the Um, first coming of Christ in the flesh, and then his coming in glory in age 70. These two advents are key to understanding the progression of the parables. If you can begin to filter the parables through these two advents, your understanding of the parables will fall in place. So that's very important, and it seems that, uh, unfortunately, Steve Hochdahl's view is going outside of those bounds. Sure enough, chapter 2, the first parable we get to, is the parable of the strong man. And the parable of the strong man is based upon um, this binding of Satan that Steve Hochdahl dismissed. It's good to see that here in T.J. St- um, Smith's book, he agrees. He says, this is, I'm just going to read you from the book, what he says. This strongman parable is the first flannel board picture we see of Christ setting up and establishing his kingdom on earth. It has relevance only in the first century. Whoa, what? Okay, hold on. Let me explain. It was fulfilled then. The strong man was Ben then, so obviously it does not apply to us now as being something we should look forward to as a future event. Jesus bound Satan 2,000 years ago. Caution if your preacher or pastor, favorite preacher or pastor, tells you Jesus still has defeated the devil, run away or turn the channel. That is unorthodox and heretical. Find a church that believes the scriptures. In fact, if they even say, yes, Jesus bound the devil, but you should head for the door or grab the remote. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for ascribing his power to the work of Beelzebub. He told them he had already bound the strong man, and that his work, had perf- his works he had performed were su- solely due to the fact that Satan was bound. Yeshua now turned his attention to the allegation they made and defined their blasphemy because he said he- they said he had an unclean spirit. Consequently, Jesus informed them that they would not be forgiven because they said the spirit of God was evil. So, binding the strong man is overthrowing of the enemy. And actually, chapter two point two of Steve Smith, uh, Smith's book. Uh, he goes into dealing with this present evil age and the age to come, two ages, and how Bible prophecy is being fulfilled within that time. You might want to go ahead and get yourself a copy of Kingdom Come by T.J. Smith to better understand these things. At Bible study last evening, I began to talk with a sister from church, and I had asked her about this parable. I said, what do you think of the, the man parable? And we began to talk. I said, do you believe it has something to do with Satan? And she said, yeah, and you know, we began to talk. Interestingly enough... Something that Steve Hochdahl did not mention in the midst of all of his study is any acknowledgement of my book, Wicked, which I went through every Bible verse going talking about Satan, and I went through an examination, so I do not hold to a fictitious understanding of Satan, a spiritual being that was cast out of heaven, or any of that. Steve Hochdahl did not acknowledge that, as it seems he may not be clued in that I have studied this out quite a bit. So... I can understand some of his sentiments in that regard, however, disagreeing with much of his modern commentary. I'll say this about the binding of Satan, and then we'll conclude this podcast. And prayerfully, you'll go ahead and maybe get your hands on a copy of Massive Deceptions in Modern Christianity if you want to further follow along as we take apart, examine, and analyze these paradigms and presuppositions that lead to confusion regarding the last days. So, talking about the binding of the strong man, which is found in Matthew chapter 12. Mark chapter 3, I forget where else, um, Revelation chapter 20, of course. And um, what's happening here is Jesus Christ comes on the scene and begins to preach the gospel. The gospel was going to go forth to those whom it was intended. That's why in John chapter 17, Jesus Christ says that he had lost none that the Father had given him. This was the work of the binding of the devil. Obviously, there was a time where the devil would be loosed for a short period, where we see that happen during the reign of Nero Caesar. It does seem as though the the efforts of God were being impeded. The gospel was being impeded, and Christians were being tortured, persecuted, and killed. So uh, there was a short period of time, which also leads in on some of the interpretation of the verses we find in other writings in the New Testament. It would be important to mark out when they were written. Were they written during the time of Nero Caesar, when Satan had been loosed? Uh... I believe would be the case with the book of James, and uh, James talking about how Satan was on the prowl seeking whom he may devour, um, that being, of course, the time after the loosening of the Satan, and that being evident in Nero Caesar. I, I pray that you marked out uh, Steve Hochdahl's seeming misunderstanding of the context of how the writings of the New Testament are written, that the letter to the Romans was not to the Roman people, Rather, it was to the church at Rome, the spiritual people that had been knit together by Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles, that were at Rome. Um, primarily, actually, Jews, if you really go through the letter in context. So uh, all that's important in gaining a healthy understanding of what we're talking about here in regards to the Satan and the binding of Satan. I've come to understand the binding of Satan that was effective in that first century, that led to the reigning of the saints, setting up on thrones about you read about in Ephesians, seated, seating in, heaven, seated in heavenly places, that... That binding was the fact that the gospel was effective to reach the elect, those to whom God had intended. It doesn't mean that deception was going to be evident among those that would be of the church, would seem to be of the church, and then would depart, therefore showing that they were never of the church, as written in the epistles of John. So all of this is important in getting an understanding. So I pray that you've marked out some important details, that if you need to, you'll go ahead and re-listen to this podcast, and uh, you'll gain an understanding of these paradigms and presuppositions. Because the goal of what we're doing here is this. We're marking out all the different understandings of the paradigms and presuppositions that are being offered up by futurists in an attempt to do away with fulfillment, to do away with fulfilled Bible prophecy. And it gets quite silly as you continue down this road. However, I believe it to be important for us to mark them out and at least gain an understanding to do the work of understanding where people are coming from. So thank you again for tuning into the podcast. Let me just close in prayer and I invite you to continue to tune in to our random podcasts of Miano Gone Wild Online Apologetics. Go ahead and listen to that YouTube video I mentioned earlier. Um, not so amusing, and uh, that you can find that on YouTube. And of course, I'm always writing blogs on mianogonwild.wordpress.com, and you can buy my co- copies of my books through that website as well. Mighty God, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege to know you, to have you, to, to be a part of your kingdom, Lord to have the spirit that illuminates your words, Lord, that we would gain an understanding of your truth through scripture. Thank you for the love of God that, has been, that is evident through the church, that is evident through your spirit in your people, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Lord, help us to distinguish between the love that keeps merely human affection in the center of things and the love you bore in your sacrificial life, death, and resurrection. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders that he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Go in peace, saints.
2: Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul. Worship his holy name, sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I worship your holy name. The sun comes up, it's a new. song again Whatever may